Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. I'm your host, Drew Bragg, and I'm joined today by Alan and Vito from Cisco Meraki. Gentlemen, would you please introduce yourself to the listeners who may not have heard of you guys? I'll start. Hi, everyone. I'm Vito. I am a Ruby and Rails developer. I've been coding in Ruby for the last 12, almost 13 years. I am in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I'm originally from Paraguay, in South America. Let Alan introduce himself. Hi, everyone. My name is Alan. I am a very old, very seasoned software engineer. I've been doing it for about 33 years now and did time on the Windows desktop, did time in the Microsoft web space. But for the last dozen years or so, I've been doing Ruby and Rails. And for the last six years, I've been managing teams. Great. And you guys are coming off of a very successful RailsConf talk, which was a expanded version of your RubyConf talk. Before we get into the fun stuff, I just wanted to say, like, I loved the talk. It was great. Listeners, if you haven't seen the RubyConf version or if the RailsConf versions are out by now, definitely hit pause on the podcast. Go check that out. You'll learn a lot about these two guys and where their head's at and why I wanted to get them on the show so much. So awesome job. Sure, we can talk about it a little bit more as we get into it. Speaking of getting into it, the way this is going to work is I'm going to ask you guys three questions. One, what are you working on? Two, what kind of blockers do you have? If you don't have a current blocker, what's recent blocker you had and how did you get around it? And then the last question is, what's something cool, new, or interesting that you've recently learned or discovered? This is a very open-ended question and really suits to your personal taste. It can be code-related, but it doesn't have to be. Sky's the limit on that one. So I'm going to shut up now and let you guys answer the first question. What are you working on? At Meraki, we are currently working on modularizing our very old, very large monolith it's code base that's grown organically over the last 15 years or so with very little attention paid to the overall architecture of the app. And we're starting the process of trying to foster the introduction of some architectural attributes that we're interested in seeing in the code base. So I'm sure the listeners will be familiar with the Shopify approach with Packwork and other companies like Gusto have been doing this as well. And their approach has been modularizing their monolith by domain and building certain public interface around each of them and then enforcing that via CI and, and all our tooling. We are starting that process and we're starting by extracting code into domain-centric namespaces. And we're coming from a place where the app was built very much the Rails way with your code either in controllers, models, or views without any clear boundaries between some of these domains. And so we're in the middle of extracting the code and not so much the actual extracting of the code, but introducing that practice with the teams we're working with and making it part of their development flow. If you're working on a bug or if you're adding a feature somewhere where it might be a shared model at this point in time, but the code is really only used in a specific domain, then we're encouraging them Go ahead and extract it, move it out into a namespace, create a new class and encapsulate this logic in there. It's kind of a different approach than companies like Gusto have taken, where our understanding from listening to their RailsConf talks is that they kind of got their senior group together and basically went through what are the modular structure look like and 
how does that play out? And then I think they actually implemented it rather than having the teams implement it themselves. And one of the things that they pointed out this year at RailsCon was that they're struggling to try and get buy-in across the org. And so that's a difference in the approach that we're taking. We are specifically looking to bring people along with us by having them do the work, explaining why and having them do the work. But eventually we hope to do the same kind of thing that they're doing, where we have public APIs around these domains and we slap people's hands if they try to access some private portion of the code base when they shouldn't. And then eventually, once we have that sort of protection for each of the domain layers built, we'll move into, all right, now that domain layer is super complex. How do we simplify that code? But for now, we're just reorganizing code. And eventually we'll get to helping teams with software complexity, which is what our RailsConf talk was about. something we're really passionate about. Yeah, I definitely could tell from the RailsConf and RubyConf talk that it's something that you guys care deeply about very cool project for two people who care deeply about that. And it's fascinating too, because I feel like I've seen almost the problem you're describing, even on mid-size Rails app, where it's like, we have this model and it does most of this stuff. And there's like this one use case where we use it over here. And it's not really what it's for, but we just have like, I don't know, a couple of methods that are only for that one use case. So it, in a way, doesn't surprise me at all that the best way to handle that when the app gets massive is to extract it into its own thing. Is it something that you guys feel is fairly easy to identify those bits and then do the extraction? Or is that almost the hard part is identifying those seams to start the refactoring on? The people who are the closest to the code, the people who are working on it and Again, this is like several hundred engineers working on this code base. So these people who are actively working on the features, they have a very clear idea. Oh, yeah, I'm only using this in these few places for most of the code. Now, there are pieces that are not clear cut. I think we are going to end up with truly shared areas of the code base. And there, the approach is going to have to be a little bit different. You want to identify the parts that are going to change often. And you want to make sure that it's as plug and play as possible so that you're not introducing artificial churn in that shared space. So one technique is to take it more towards like a framework. So the shared area of the code that is not really changing, that can support the bits that do need to change. But yes, there are areas that are not clear cut. Those are a little bit harder and we're hunting on them right now because we have so much that is just incidentally shared right now that is easy to extract. And so as we move that code out, then we're left with what's truly hard to divide, share, not really like belonging to any specific domain. I've worked on probably half a dozen or more production Rails apps in my career. Most of them have had God classes that just sort of like, here's a 4,000 line model. Why is there a 4,000 line model? Maybe there should be 40, 100 line models and not build the app in a single file. So that's kind of where we're headed. We want to take these super large classes and whittle them down to hopefully nothing. Those large classes, because they're so large and there's so many functions in them, they're constantly churning. You're constantly in there. You're constantly risking introducing a new bug. And if you can extract that code out and put it into a file that is brand new, 
and that will only change for one reason, its churn score is going to remain low. And the only reason you really have to go in there is to either simplify the code, which we will get to eventually, or perhaps to fix a bug. Uh, But when you're there, you're only in that one spot and you're not risking the chance of adding a bug to some other piece of the code. So it's a really fascinating and rewarding challenge to sort of tear these things apart. Yeah, it's like pure refactoring. It's very much a we're changing structure, but not behavior. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. And it brings up a really great point. I think you're probably going to go there. Uh, Uh, Testing. Yes, it is an absolute requirement to do any of this that you have tests. Because if you don't have tests telling you that you're not changing behavior, then you're not truly refactoring. You're just moving code around in a risky manner. Is that something that was a, obviously it's a prerequisite, but something that you guys had to tackle ahead of time where code base didn't have the best test coverage and now it's good so we can start the refactoring or were you lucky enough to have a solid test suite for? And no, a little bit of kind of incremental. Yeah. So as you get ready to refactor a particular piece of code, you check the test coverage and if it doesn't seem quite adequate, you extend the tests until you feel comfortable that you're well protected from the extraction process. And then once you extract the code and it's all by itself, it's a lot easier to see what tests you could write for that piece of code and not like this large integration test. And so we'll often go back and add tests once something's been extracted. We've got this integration test that tells us we didn't break it or some multiple integration tests. But then once the code has been extracted, we'll add unit tests to that code as well. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. And to touch on your earlier point, the feel like the concept of having the people who work with the code day in and day out be the stewards of finding those seams and doing the abstraction. You say it and you just go, yes, duh. Why wouldn't you do it that way? But like the engineers at Gusto are very intelligent engineers. They're very smart. They know what they're doing. So it's not one of those duh moments. It's one of those, oh yeah, let's put our senior staff on it because they've got all the tribal knowledge or domain knowledge of the whole thing. Trust me, Fido is one of the most senior engineers at our company. We have some very talented folks sort of guiding the rest of the organization through this process. I think in our case, there's definitely value in the approach of just get it done, at least set up the structure so that our teams can then just start working within those confines. And I think I can see that working in certain domains and I can see that working in certain code bases. In our case, our domain is very, fairly complex and varied. And we're very many (laughs) working on this code base. And the way we're approaching this is we're not asking anybody to drop any other work they're doing. Like Alan was saying, it's incremental. Our guidance has been, if you are working on a bug or a feature in this area of the code base, if you have a reason to touch this, then take that extra. And we've done this multiple times within our own code base. And it tends to take like 20 to 30 minutes more, maybe an hour, depending on the complexity of the code, to move out the code. So you're going to work on it anyway. You're probably going to write tests anyway. So take that extra bit of time to ensure there's good coverage, move it out into a class, and then leave it be for now. And next time you come around to add another feature, then maybe spend a little bit more time refactoring and lowering complexity. It's very incremental. It's very much a change in the development practices rather than, okay, this is a project where we're going to have to do 
major trade-offs and stop development for certain features and do this instead. When you are incrementally starting to move things about, is there a technique that you all use to kind of alert other developers in the area of like, we don't want to use this particular method anymore. We want to use this class and go about it that way. Or, hey, this group of methods haven't moved yet, but we've already done some of the groundwork of like, yeah, last time we were in here, we made this class and moved a couple of things over. These other things need to move, but there's more work there. So as people are touching it, they know to make the change. Like what tools or techniques do you have in place to kind of alert developers to that? That's a great question. We actually were hoping to get a chance to talk about that. We've built some tooling around it. So step one was actually just sharing the approach, the strategy, the goals with folks. We have part of our culture at Meraki is we have these meetups where anyone can sign up to give a talk, share information with the rest of the org. So we've been leveraging those to communicate with people. Hey, like this is how we're going to go about this. And so it's in people's heads, but also we've built tooling that will uh, almost like a static analysis tool that will let you know as you're committing code, hey, you missed an opportunity here to move this out. And if you did move code out, we also provide you with a letter grade, kind of like with Ruby credit card. Ruby credit card. Yeah. So we'll tell you, you got to be, and we invite you to come talk to the team that's kind of guiding the rest of the org through this process. And along that, we have office hours. So we've logged chunks of time throughout the week where people can just drop in and ask questions about the approach they're taking. We even run what we call extractathons, where it's like all hands on deck for our team. And we buy everybody who's in the office boba or pizza or something and just encourage people to spend the day extracting code with our team on deck to like help them if they get stuck. And that's been actually quite successful. We've overloaded our CI system with all the commits on <laughs> nice. uh, some of those days. So that's actually pretty cool. That's a cool problem to have yeah. overloaded a CI because we did so much work. Very cool. So I guess it's a very natural next question, but what are some of the common blockers that you see with this? And then also, is there a particular blocker that you want to talk about? Probably the biggest blocker is there are several hundred engineers and they're not all marching in lockstep. They all have their own ideas about how to write software. They all have their own approach. And we're not trying to tell them, here's how to write software. What we're trying to tell them is, if you organize the software in this particular way, we can give you all kinds of different like bonuses, metrics that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. So if you're going to continue adding code to the monolith, then you're only going to be able to see the monolith's average code complexity. But if you move your code into a domain-centric area, we can give you domain-specific code complexity numbers. We can give you domain-specific code coverage numbers. And in doing that, we can even allow you to just run your tests in isolation. And when you have 90,000 RSpec tests, (laughs) when you have 90,000 RSpec tests, being able to run some small subset of them in isolation means you're not going to run into the kind of flakiness that you might otherwise run into with that giant test suite. So it's a real advantage to teams to start pulling their code out, but you still got to win the hearts and minds of several hundred engineers. 
no small feet. That is definitely right. a blocker. Yeah. So that's where tooling, you know, mentioned that an engineer will get a B or a C on their extraction and they'll come to office hours and say, how the hell do I fix that? What did I do wrong? And that's exactly the behavior we're trying to drive. We're trying to encourage them to want that A. We haven't done this yet, but we could extend that tooling into other kinds of attributes that we want to encourage in the code base and continue to give them letter grades like that, which it's insane how successful that little tool has been at driving the right behavior. People are just so excited when they get an A. They'll even come to office hours and say, look, I got an A. Nice. So cool. Yeah, That is very cool. And I think that's a testament to closing that feedback loop and making it tighter. The faster that engineers get feedback on their code, the faster they can make adjustments and they're going to be able to respond. So I think that's a really good approach to solving that type of blocker. Yeah, we also do a lot of pair programming. So someone will come to office hours and they'll have a problem that might require more than 20 or 30 minutes to sit down and solve. And so we'll invite them to come pair with us. And that's been a hugely effective, hard to scale, but very effective approach to mentorship and to helping people sort of make that transition. We've even gotten to the point where some of the folks who were coming to office hours regularly and setting up regular pairing sessions kind of graduated from the program and they're able to like guide their own teams in this way now. And so it's really cool how folks are adopting it, how folks are embracing it. And yet we still run into the occasional engineer who's like, that's not the way I've ever done it before. I don't trust this way. I need to think about it. I want to do it this other way. That's not the Rails way. How do you balance that bit of Rails is designed to be a majestic monolith and you're talking about modularization, you're talking about getting off the Rails, but I would imagine that you don't want to get so far off the Rails that like you're fighting Rails to make this work. So how do you find balance between the Rails way and this more modular way? Yeah, well, thankfully, we're not the first ones going through this journey. So we're leveraging the learnings from Shopify and Gusto and other companies. And the approach that we think we're going to land on, but we're going to arrive there incrementally, is something like the packages from Packwork, where you still have a slice of a Rails app. You're still working with controllers and models. But in addition to that, you have this sense of a domain with a boundary and also what the rest of the community would call service objects that encapsulate most of your domain logic. So in a sense, you end up with what feels like smaller Rails code bases inside a big single monolith. I think Shopify goes so far as to put those things in engines. We haven't decided whether that's the right approach for us yet, but the idea is just to draw some to use domain-driven design language to draw some bounded contexts inside the monolith so that if we discover, DHH is fond of talking about outposts, if we discover that there's a part of the app that needs to scale at a different rate, if we've pulled it into a bounded context, it makes it a ton easier to actually extract it completely from the app. But if it's still got tendrils all tangled into the rest of the app, it's impossible to pull it out without doing open heart surgery. Yeah. Shotgun surgery. Don't want to do that. Yeah. We want to continue to leverage things that are good about Rails. Active Breaker is, I don't know, it's the best ORM I've worked with. So it's solid. We don't want to get away from it. Now, Active Breaker is a great ORM. It's not a good place to put all of your 
code necessarily that has nothing to do with database transactions, for example. Same with the controllers. They're great at translating HTTP into a set of params and headers that you can then work with. So we don't want to get away from that. And keep the things that are good about Rails, but also make room for a domain layer that we can have where we can encourage certain attributes we want to see in the code base. The last time I saw DHH talk about how big Basecamp is, I want to say it was in the 40,000 lines of code range. It's tiny, really small. And Rails is perfect for Basecamp, obviously. Our code base is about 1.6 million lines of code. That's a lot of code. That's a lot of code. And the traditional Rails-isms about fat model skinny controller doesn't work when you get a 16,000 line controller or a 10,000 line model. They're impossible to work with. So you end up with this desire to to start thinking more about service objects and extracting single responsibility objects out of those larger things. And Rails traditionally hasn't really had much to say about that. It's just models, views, and controllers, which at certain scales makes perfect sense. I love that I can build a blog in 15 minutes. At your scale, if you're not building a blog, you're not anymore doing a lot more. And I know that since you brought up Basecamp, like there has been hostings, blog posts that come out of Basecamp about how they do things. And one of their ways of keeping a file, like a class file slimmer, is to lean on concerns and kind of break out within their particular model almost a domain area and break that out into a concern and then just include that. So that way, if you're, oh, how do I incinerate X? You're going into that module, not into the class proper, keeps the class a little bit smaller, but still keep that fat model approach. When you're at your scale, why does that type of approach fall on its face? We've experienced a lot of pain with module mixings. And the reality is that a module that you mix into a class is just You haven't actually extracted that behavior. There's no separate unit that you can run tests against, that you can provide a solid interface to work with. You have extended the interface of that existing model. The model still has all those responsibilities. You're not calling the module separately. And we've actually seen it lead to certain bad practices like referencing state in the module that's set up in either a controller or a model. And then now you have a mystery guest. And as you extract more and more concerns, you might find yourself using state that's actually set up by a different concern. And now the model that's hosting both modules now has... Basically, because there's no class boundary there, you're able to reference things across modules, across concerns, and across the model or the controller in a way that... Like the language isn't helping you anymore. It's really easy to take a reference to an instance variable in the module that was defined in the class. And now you look at the module and you're like, well, where's this instance variable defined? I'll just refactor it into a local variable. Why does it need to be an instance variable? And boom, you've broken the class. So from our perspective, modules are just moving part of the class into a different file. And while that does provide some benefit in the sense that you can organize things into certain files, it doesn't give you the protection of the class boundary between the things, which we find more useful than the organizational piece. And certainly we're talking about two drastically different scales. Yeah, totally. 
and two different approaches. If your model has a few hundred lines of code in it, and that's your fat model, yeah. fine, go for it. But if it's got 10,000 lines of code, then it's an entire application in and of itself, and it should probably be more than one file. Yeah, and even at a layer above how many lines of code, how many developers? I mean, Basecamp, last I checked, maybe was in the double digits worth of programmers for Basecamp, maybe more because of Hay. But when you go from that many (laughs) engineers to a couple hundred, the way that you have to ensure that they don't fuck on themselves change. It's very easy on a very small team to just say, hey, don't do this. Bad idea could lead into problems in the future. When you have a couple hundred, it becomes infinitely more difficult to just be like, yeah, bad practice. Try not to do it. It becomes much more important to not even let them do it in the first place. We're actually quite bigger than that. We are about 500 Rails engineers and we're growing. We're continuing to hire, which Obviously, if anybody's listening and would like to job, yeah, like yeah. job, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. See what that does to my LinkedIn account. There you go. You yeah. made a pretty good point there, Drew. There are certain things that go beyond the size of a pure lines of code. And there's certain knowledge that is easy to be kept within a team when the team is smaller. I've worked with teams that we were like, I don't know, less than 10. We all were very deeply familiar with the code that we were working on. and we were able to make certain decisions in the code, like, oh, we're going to extract this into a module. We know where this is used. We all have a shared understanding and we keep each other accountable. But if you go beyond a certain number of people, that just doesn't... If you can have as much documentation and comments as you want, somebody's going to come in and be, oh, this doesn't make sense and change it. Meraki started off like that. We were a very small startup for many years. And with a team of 20 or 30 engineers, even as big as 30, you're still able to hold most of the application, at least conceptually in your head. You may not remember the specifics, but as the application grows and as you add more and more engineers, you begin to have to modularize the team. You begin to have to specialize the team into different areas. And as soon as that happens, context is out the window. You've lost context on the part of the app you're not working on anymore. and You end up in that space where you can't behave that way anymore. Within your domain, you can, but you've got to have the discipline to structure your monolith in a way that it is domain-centric so that you can have that autonomy within your own sphere of influence. I don't know how big Basecamp is either, but we are quite easily 10 times bigger than they are. And that means at least 10 different teams operating at that scale in collaboration with each other. And it sounds like the goal is to almost be able to get back to that within your team and your domain knowledge, you have the freedom and flexibility to do certain things that you don't get when it's just a hodgepodge of just everybody's code all mixed in. You create these seams and these boundaries so that in my world, this is how we can do things and blah, blah, blah. But to the outside world, here's how you interact. That's very structured. And then each team sort of gets back to that. We are a small team and therefore we can move fast. Yep, exactly. In fact, we want to give teams so much autonomy that while we have published best practices, we want them to be able to experiment within their domain. And maybe they find something that's even better than what we propose. And if it works better, we're all for adopting it and espousing it with the other teams. So giving teams the autonomy to try things 
is a huge part of this. And it gives them that freedom and flexibility to operate like a much smaller team. I have a feeling I know where my next question is going because you've kind of already hinted at some of the tools and things. But so throughout this whole process, what are some of the coolest and most interesting bits that you guys have gotten to work on, whether it's we found this cool problem or we found a cool solution where we were able to build something to help us move forward with our vision? We are not far enough along yet at Meraki, but we have found some patterns in our own work that will lead this, like this is headed towards where we think some of these patterns are. One of which is this technique we call inside-out development. Inside-out development starts with the domain. You write those service objects first. You use tests to drive them. And then you could use a repository pattern to isolate yourself from the data model and mock the repositories, write the tests. And now your business logic is 100% tested and 100% ready to plug into whatever framework you decide to use. You could choose to use Rails, you could choose to use Hanami, you could choose to use Sinatra, or you could roll your own. And Shido and I are we're friends outside of work. We spend a lot of time working together on personal projects. And we've been playing with that technique a lot lately. What we find is that the business logic is completely portable from whatever we decide to use today to whatever we decide to use tomorrow. I know that's a controversial statement in the Rails community. If you're going to use Rails, why wouldn't you just start with Rails? And for us, what it allowed us to do was to like think about what is it we love about Rails and what is it we would like to see improved? One of the things we want to see improved is where does the domain logic live in one of these super large monoliths? It needs a home. It can't live in all of the models. They just get too big. So that gave us permission to like, well, let's go explore what a framework might look like if we built one ourselves. So we did. We came up with this small kind of fledgling framework. It only serves JSON right now. It's not true. It'll serve HTML. If it just doesn't have any support for generating the HTML yet. You could use ERB, but it'd be fine. But the way it's structured, every route is associated with an endpoint. And the way that endpoint is just a class, but it uses self-registration to say, I'm the one that handles this route. So there's a method that gets called at the top of the class that says, I forget what it's called, handles. I think it's handles, yeah. Handles, and then the verb, and then the path that it handles. The path can have placeholders for IDs and things in it, so it can be dynamic. And it then has methods that the framework knows how to call, like status and JSON and headers. And so instead of there being like a show method that has to set the headers and has to set the return value, the status, and then call render, the framework just knows, hey, I'm going to render something. I'm either going to render JSON or HTML or maybe text. So there's all three of those methods could exist in an endpoint, depending on what the user's requesting. I know I'm going to call the status method. I know I need headers. And so those methods just exist. And there are defaults. The framework will provide default headers. If you're returning JSON, for example, it knows to return application JSON. But when it's all said and done, there's no routes file. Every endpoint just tells you what route it serves. So when you want to add another endpoint, you literally just add another class 
with the tests that tests that it returns the right thing when you call those different methods. And it's super simple, very simple framework. And when you've got your domain logic isolated because you've written it first, it's super simple because there's generally a one-to-one relationship between the endpoint and the service class, for lack of a better word, that actually performs the work. So if you were to think about a to-do application, you're going to have a create to-do or create project or something. So you'd have this endpoint that responds to post and then the path is to-do. Ultimately, that would hand off to a class called create to-do behind the scenes. And because that class is isolated from the concerns of the HTTP request, it's completely testable in isolation. It doesn't require some kind of controller level integration test to test it. And because your domain logic is like, that's the thing that makes your application unique. That's the thing that makes your application valuable. It's the code you want to have fully tested, tested it to 100% coverage because that's where the money is for your application. The fact that your app is a Rails app, that doesn't add any value to your application. may add speed to your development process, but it's not why people pay you money for the application. They pay you money for that domain logic. I got a little probably too deep into code there and format, but the idea is self-registration. So being able to tell the system, hey, I do this. I'm the class that does this thing. Whether that's the router or whether that's the domain class, the service object that says, hey, I'm the one that creates to-do items. That concept, plus the sort of inside out, writing the domain logic first, we are just super excited about it. And we can't wait to talk about it more. We've proposed a talk. We proposed a workshop for RailsConf about it. I don't think it was quite Railsy enough for RailsConf. So maybe RubyConf next year. Yeah. But yeah, it's super, super cool stuff. And it's where we eventually would like to see maybe even Rails move this way, where for legacy reasons, there's still going to be a routes file. But it'd be nice if you could also register an endpoint class to handle a route sort of differently than a controller class would. So there'd be a one-to-one relationship between an endpoint and a route that way. I get this framework and, and the feature we've added to it. They all came out of the what Alan said at the beginning. There are things that we like about Rails, and there were some things that were like, ah, wouldn't it be great if this was different? And then we decided, like, we're doing this on the weekend, so we decided, eh, let's try it out. What would it look like? And it's a lot of fun. And we have a couple of small apps that we've been using to derive this framework. And yeah, I'm excited to eventually like test it out with something more meaty, like a production case, but it's got a long way yeah, to go. It's got a long way to go. Like it doesn't handle authentication or so there's a lot of work to do still if it's ever going to turn into a production worthy framework. But as a toy that we can expand and like play with concepts. It's given us a lot to dig into. And if people have feedback for Liberty, you can find it on GitHub. We would love to hear it. I will be checking it out. I will include it in the show notes. I think there's a lot of value in having some sort of toy side project where you can do what you guys reference is like, let's try out this approach. Here's something I don't like about Rails or I don't feel is the best 
use case for me? Like, what would it look like if it did this instead and experiment? Because there's, I know I've run into it where I have this idea in my head, but then once it comes out into code and I start actually interacting with it, I'm like, oh, that's yeah. why it was a terrible exactly. idea. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's why they said, don't do it that way. Got it. Okay, cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. I'm going to go back to doing it this way. But then also being able to vet a idea of, well, I think, and then seeing it in code and getting to interact with it and go, actually, I... Right. Like sometimes it's specific to the type of app that you're building, but just being able to do those things and having a sandbox is a good way of describing it. To do, I do it with Rails apps where I'll just Rails new just to work on something in isolation. Sounds like you guys were like, but fuck it, let's just build a whole new framework instead of Rails new in this, which I love. I think more Ruby frameworks is a great approach to being able to solve. If you work with Ruby, you work with Rails. I love Rails. I probably won't work on anything else professionally, but I'm also not saying no ever. But I think that the whole ecosystem benefits from more ways to just, hey, if you want to work with Ruby, it's not just Rails. It's Anami. Or if you want to build desktop applications, we've got Scarpe. Or you can use potentially someday Liberty like giving people the options will just do nothing but raise the Ruby ecosystem and rising tide raises all boots. So, Wow. There were so many things you said there I want to respond to. The first is that, yes, it's totally a sandbox. It's totally a place for us to play around. The second is we kind of started, this is like our second or third iteration on this. Like the first time we had the endpoint idea coupled to the domain object idea in a way that the longer we used it, the more we're like, that just doesn't, it's yeah. not right. And so we've decoupled those two things. And now we have, it helped us understand sort of, wow, if we start with the domain logic, we actually end up with a much tighter application that is all these little single responsibility objects that just do the one thing. They only have one reason to change. Anyway, so iterating in that sandbox gave us that learning. And then ultimately, I mean, Liberty's great as a toy. I don't know that it necessarily means needs to be an alternative to Rails. What I think is that as we become more integrated into the Rails community, which we are starting to try to think about how do we do that, some of those learnings we've taken from our personal work might make it into Meraki's work, and then Meraki's work will likely influence Rails, just given how large we are as we are able to become more and more connected with the community which is a huge reason why we were a sponsor at Rails this year, RailsConf this year. We definitely want to be involved. And it's a 16-year-old app. It's like a rocket. We've been riding this rocket and holding on for dear life for 16 years while the thing grows spectacular scale. And I think now we have finally reached a scale of having enough engineers and having enough platform engineers to be able to step back and look at it and say, well, where is Rails letting us down? Where is Rails meeting our needs? And how can we influence Rails in a direction that we think will help us and others like us? Because there, there are others like us. There's GitHub and Shopify and Gusto who are struggling with large Rails monoliths or not struggling variously. <laughs> GitHub's got their act together. Shopify seems to have their act together. I'm not Gusto as well. I'm not casting shade on anybody. But the final thing I was going to say is that as we grow in that space, being able to bring those ideas that started off small and move them into larger and larger ecosystems 
and test them. Is that idea going to work at this scale? Eventually, we'll get to the point where we'll either know yes or no. And if the answer is yes and it's helpful and we can communicate it well to the Rails community, we'd love to give it back. We'd love to incorporate it so that if we put it into Rails 8, for example, now we just pull Rails 8 and we've got what we need. The second to last thing I was going to mention is the router in Liberty is strongly influenced by Hanami's router. We use a tree just like Hanami does. The whole idea of a single endpoint to each controller action, that's right out of Hanami as well. And so we're looking at other frameworks to sort of see, well, what could we incorporate into Rails that would enable Meraki to scale our system? And it's something we just play with on the weekends. Yeah. So. Aside from Meraki, like Alan and I have been working together for nine years, nine years now, but three different companies. So we've been thinking about these challenges with large monoliths for a while before we even joined Meraki. And it, it's just a passion project of ours to find better ways to, to write software that can stand the test of time. One thing I wanted to say is I was very personally super inspired by Eileen Uchidel's keynote in RailsConf 2022 about how rather than Rails or monkey patch it to solve your problem, like see if that would be useful for other people and kind of give back to the community. And in that spirit, personally, by working on things like Liberty and finding different ways to approach things that Rails have solved, I've learned a ton about Rails itself. Like, oh, this is why they do it this way. <laughs> right. Or, right. Ah, yeah. This is why this particular thing can't be faster because we have these many features that need to be supported or it's DSL that we need to, we can't take away from people. And so there's a lot of learning happening there. And there's also a ton of ideas that are not just fun to play with, but that might turn into something useful for somebody else. And I have personally gone from, I need a different framework because I run into these pain points over the years to, oh, it would be cool if this was an option in something like Rails too. So if you're working in a code base of a certain size, you can choose to use this approach. Or if you are in a different situation, then maybe you can leverage this other slightly different approach, but in a way that's integrating and not dividing the community, augmenting it in, in a way. We definitely, as a Ruby community, want to avoid the whole Python 2, Python 3 thing. So anything that we can do to maintain that compatibility is crucially important. So super excited about that stuff. Yeah, upstreaming into Rails improves Rails. And sometimes the best way to find the ways to improve Rails is to go off and try it. Some of those concepts in another place. And then, like you said, Vito, like, oh, that's why this works this way. Or that's why this thing that I was venting about stupid Rails, why do you force me to do this? Oh, it's because there's very good reasons behind it, but then potentially being able to solve them kind of starts to bubble to the surface once you start playing with more in-depthly. So, well, this has been a lot of fun, guys. I feel like we could do like four more episodes. So (laughs) yeah, for sure. Awesome. So where can folks who want to know more about the work you guys are doing or just more about you guys or reach out, make contact, where can people find you guys on the internet? I am predominantly on LinkedIn and on Mastodon now. I do still have a Twitter account, but Alan at Ruby.social, A-L-A-N. Yep. Same. I mostly Mastodon and LinkedIn nowadays at Ruby Social. 
Awesome. I'll include links to those in the show notes so people can get a hold of you, ask you more questions, bother you some more. And I feel like there's definitely enough content, enough things that we weren't able to touch on this episode or will potentially change for you guys in the coming months that we'll have to have you back on to talk more about, hey, things that we talked about last time, how are they going? And then also what's new in your world? Because I'm always interested to hear how decisions start to play out in the long term. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on the show. It was an absolute blast. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, sir. Thanks, Drew.